And Father, as we prepare our own hearts to come to your word now, we thank you for your word, and we know that your word is sufficient. We know that your word accomplishes your work in us. We know that faith comes by hearing, and so Lord, we ask that you would grow our faith even today as we study your word. We pray, Lord, that as we consider the truths of the passage that we'll be looking at today, that you would show us our desperate need for your grace, which is found in Christ alone. Oh Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Help us to be not only hearers, but doers for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is going to be one of those rare occasions where we actually get through a whole chapter and then a little nibble after. We're going to get through a whole chapter today. It's 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, we'll be covering the whole chapter. You know, sometimes when I reflect back on my life, I just had my birthday this past week, so uh, I've spent a lot of time reflecting back on my life. Uh, I sometimes think about the marketing slogans that have stuck with me through the years. Uh, some of you have probably had similar experiences where you'll remember marketing slogans that you heard when you were just a kid. And it's amazing how, uh, how efficient they are at sticking with us. Uh, for me, I remember being, I don't know, six or seven years old. And the, uh, in Las Vegas, the, the baseball team that they showed every Saturday was the Dodgers. And so I had camped you know, in front of the TV watching the Dodgers every uh, Saturday afternoon. And they would play this song for, for Chevrolet Motors in which they'd sing this song that goes, we love baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. They go together in the good old USA. And, and it still sticks with me. Uh, in fact, I was singing it to my daughter last night just to show her like, how crazy it is that 45, 40, you know, 44 years later, I still know that song and can still sing it even though I haven't heard it since I was a little kid. Uh, one of the more famous marketing slogans, and I'm sure more of you are going to remember this one, was from about 20 years ago. It was, can you hear me now? And it caught on because for those of you who are too young to remember, back in those days, now we sound old, right? Back in those days, your cell reception kind of went in and out and it was good and went down to zero bars you know, instantly because there wasn't cell re uh, reception everywhere you went. So if you were in your car or if you were just walking down the street, you'd go in and out. And so Verizon simply picked up on a line that everybody was saying anyway, and it became really famous. Uh, can you hear me now? It's a good question. You ever ask God that question? Because on a less playful note, where, where do you go if you want to hear from the Lord? In times of the Protestant Reformation, one of the slogans that emerged was a slogan that was simply three words, post tenebras lux, which simply meant in Latin, after darkness, light. 
The assumption behind the slogan was that as God's rules and God's ways were recovered by having a higher view of God's word, God's light would shine out into the darkness of the culture. And so to that end, the weekly sermon schedule in Geneva, if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know that Geneva was kind of a central location. That's where John Calvin uh, spent most of his ministry. He was kicked out of there for a little bit, but he came back. Uh, but must, much of the, the groundwork of the Reformation took place there, but their preaching schedule for every week read as follows, quote, each Sunday there is to be a sermon at St. Pierre and St. Gervais at break of day and at the usual hour, 9 a.m. At midday there is to be catechism, that is instruction of little children in all three churches. At three o'clock, the second sermon, on working days, there will be a sermon at St. Pierre's three times a week, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So in other words, if you were in Geneva in those days, there were six sermons per week, which is a lot, obviously. And you might ask, why do they need so many sermons? And the answer is because Calvin and the other reformers, it wasn't just Calvin, it was the reformers in general, they were convinced that God's word preached would result in God's ways being established or reestablished and would also result in God's light being shined into the darkness. And where did they get that idea? Where did they get this conviction upon which they, they obviously acted very strongly? The answer is from Scripture. Uh, one of the places where we see the importance of, indeed, the utter dependence that man has on the preaching of God's Word is in the fact that one of the signs that you'll see in the Old Testament of God casting judgment upon a people or a culture, a nation, was when God would withdraw light by withdrawing His Word. Listen to what God warned Israel of through the prophet Amos in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Uh, he said through the prophet Amos, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now, if we didn't know better, we might think that he was talking about our own times today. But the idea there is very clear. That where the word of the Lord is not proclaimed faithfully, a famine will exist which is far more deadly than a famine of food or water. And God has the sovereign right to withdraw His Word and to cause a famine to fall on a land. Psalm 74 laments the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the psalmist, in the middle of Psalm 74, uh, laments this. He says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. That's in verse 9. And the implication there is that since there was no prophet, the people could not hear from God. It's a sign of judgment on a nation, on a people. This was also the condition in the time frame of the text that we come to today in 1 Samuel chapter 3 as we continue our study of this book. There's been a famine of hearing from God in those days. 
Now we've seen the way that the tabernacle in Shiloh had been really defiled. It, it had been desecrated by both Eli and his sons. Eli had allowed his sons to continue serving in the tabernacle, even though he knew that they were stealing from the people and actually stealing from God. And he knew that his sons were laying with women who came to serve at the tabernacle, to put it in uh, very light terms. And the result of his sons doing this and of him being complicit in it, complicit in the way that he did nothing to remedy the situation, was that God vowed to strike down Eli's entire household. They would permanently be removed from the Lord's service in the tabernacle. But the point of the passage that we come to today as we see what happens after Eli has received that warning, the passage Uh, The point of the passage that we come to today is that where God's word is faithfully proclaimed, God's voice is heard and his light is shined into the darkness. And so our duty is to respond in faith and obedience to God's word, not only proclaiming it, not only sharing it, but also keeping it, obeying it. Not just being hearers of God's Word, because even the unregenerate man, even the devil, can hear God's Word, but to also be doers of God's Word, as James put it. So the third chapter of 1 Samuel begins in a very dark place. Um, At some point, probably a few years, I, I would guess, since God had sent a man of God to deliver the message of God's indictment and judgment against Eli and his household, which we saw at the end of the previous chapter, but we're immediately going to be hit with the idea that it was a time of great, great spiritual darkness. Just look at verse 1 with me in chapter 3. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. So this would be a couple centuries prior to that time of darkness, uh, that time of uh, famine of the Word of God that the prophet Amos had uh, had spoken of. But what's clear here is that there is a famine once again, a famine of the Word of Yahweh in the land in these uh, early days of Samuel as well. And we already know why that is. We know why there's a famine. Yeah, we could say that it's, it's God's judgment upon the people, and that much would be true. But ultimately, it's because the sons of Eli, who were serving as priests in the tabernacle, we were told back in chapter 2, verse 12, did not know God. So imagine, if you will, a restaurant where you have a chef who doesn't know how to cook. You'd say, yeah, there's going to be people who are starving you know he's not going to be able to serve food to anybody at least not palatable food not if he doesn't know how to cook not if he doesn't know how to cook for a lot of people the restaurant's eventually going to shut down so it's no wonder then that there was a famine in the land a spiritual darkness in the land in those days because do you think there might be a connection between there being incredible moral and spiritual failure in the priesthood and there being also a rarity to God's word being heard. Think there's a connection there? 
Yeah, of, of course there's a connection between those two things. And let's not be mistaken by supposing that this meant that there was no religion in Israel, that nobody was practicing any kind of religion, either by Israel or by Eli's sons. No, there was absolutely a religion. But it was a false religion. It, it was idolatry. Because man always worships something. Something always has a priority in a person's life. Uh, So man always worships something. The question then becomes not do you worship, but whom do you worship? Or what do you worship? So this is a terrible curse that's fallen on Israel. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. And that's exactly what we've seen playing out thus far in 1 Samuel. A nation that does not hear God will not fear God. A nation that does not hear God will not fear God. And where there is no fear of God, what do you think happens? Moral chaos ensues. We see that playing out in our own nation right now, don't we? So it's not in our nation that it's difficult to find a church Everywhere you go, you can find a church. No, they're absolutely everywhere. But finding a church where the Word of the Lord is faithfully preached actually isn't easy at all. And that's not just here. No, I was in North Carolina last month, and I talked with pastors from across the nation and people who were just congregants from across the nation who were testifying to the same thing in their area. It's so hard to find a church where the Word of God is faithfully preached even though in the south there are churches on every corner what a terrible judgment when god's word is not faithfully preached god's voice is not heard and when god's voice is not heard god is not feared and when god is not feared moral chaos ensues and that is what judgment from god upon a nation looks like and so we're told that Samuel was not like the sons of Eli right off the bat here. He was worshiping, he was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And when we hear that, it should kind of be based on what we've already been hearing about the sons of Eli and what they've been doing in the tabernacle. It's kind of like emerging from a building filled with smoke and stepping outside and getting a breath of fresh air. But what's interesting to see is that it tells us he's ministering before Eli. That is to say that Eli is overseeing Samuel's service. But if your Bibles are open, look back at chapter 2, verse 11, where we read something that was actually very similar. Uh, Back in chapter 2, verse 11, it said, The boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Do you see what's missing this time around? Eli is not given the title of priest. Maybe that's because God's judgment against him has been rendered. That's a possibility. Uh, but it's only a matter of time for him and his household now. We don't know exactly why the title is withheld, but that would be uh, our, probably our best guess. But whatever the case, we're supposed to see two things uh, that set the stage in this verse. Number one, we're supposed to see that there was a famine of the word of Yahweh that a word from Yahweh was, was rarely heard. And we're supposed to see that Samuel was not like the sons of Eli, in that he was faithfully ministering to the Lord at the tabernacle. 
but God's near silence is about to end. Let's continue, verses 2 to 9. It says, It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be if he calls you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now in the previous chapter, we saw that there was kind of a contrast between Samuel on one hand and the sons of Eli on the other hand. And it kind of went back and forth so that you were, you were kind of comparing the two and seeing how different they were from one another. But in this chapter, we're to see that there's actually a remarkable contrast between Samuel and Eli himself. Not the sons of Eli, but Eli himself. Now, we've already been told that Eli was old, uh, but... We saw, in the, we saw that in the previous chapters as he uh, went to confront and to rebuke his, his sons. But he's apparently aged even more between then and this point because now we're told that one of the, the big symptoms of old age that he had was that he was becoming blind. He was losing his vision. Isn't that interesting? Right after we're told that visions were infrequent in verse 1, we're told that the man who had been functioning as the high priest was losing his vision. Now, given the proximity of these two things, I don't think it was a coincidence that these two things are put right next to each other. It seems apparent that the author of the text wants us to see that Eli's physical ailment with his vision was actually a, a picture of the spiritual, spiritual reality, both of Eli and of Israel at the time. Uh, he had chosen to look away from the actions of his sons, and now he can't see much of anything. He can't see what Samuel is doing, and he can't see the word of the Lord when the scrolls are opened. But while Eli was going blind, Samuel's eyes are about to be opened by a new vision of the Lord. Eli was lying down in his place, uh, which would have been some living quarters uh, that he had away from the tabernacle, separate from the tabernacle. But then we read by point of contrast that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And what I love is that in verse 9, it's, it ends with, so Samuel went and laid down in his place. That was his place, the tabernacle. 
Now, of course, the tabernacle represented the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. And that was where Samuel lived. He lived in the presence that represented God's presence. This had been designated as a place where the word of Lord of the Lord could be heard, uh, where sacrifices would be made, where incense and, and prayers, would be, uh, prayers would be offered and incense would be burned. Clearly, this was a place where Samuel felt comfortable and safe because you don't sleep in a place where you don't feel comfortable and safe. Uh, but let's not miss the fact that this is also where the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God as it's called here in this text, uh, was located. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, is going to be very significant, very important in the upcoming uh, passages, in the upcoming uh, chapters. But for now, we should just remember, and it's a reminder to us, that God had spoken to His people. He had revealed Himself to His people. He had revealed not only Himself, but He had revealed His ways and His commandments to them. And He had made His covenant with these people which they were to live by. Now the setting here in this text is obviously nighttime since everybody's sleeping, and that's reinforced when we read that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. That means that this would have taken place probably not too long before the break of dawn, uh, as the lamps would remain lighted until early morning when the sun came up. Uh, This is in accordance with God's instruction in uh, Exodus chapter 27, verse 21, where God said, Aaron and his sons shall keep it, that is, the burning light shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. But again, it seems that this was kind of a picture. There's a visual representation here. The, the, the picture of Israel's spiritual condition is represented by the light. The light of God was dim. But it hadn't been entirely extinguished. Which is a sign to us as the reader of some really good news. That God wasn't done with Israel. And that's good news for Israel. So all of this sets the stage for what must have been a night that Samuel would look back on and would remember and would go over in his mind again and again throughout the rest of his life. At this point, we have to assume that he's no longer a little boy. Uh, Many years have passed. We don't know... Um, exactly how old he is or exactly how many years have passed. Uh, But the text has made it clear that much time has elapsed between chapter 1 and this point. So I'd say, you know, it's, it's possible, if not likely, that Samuel is at least, you know, 10 or so years old here, but we can't be entirely sure. Uh, But suddenly, look at verse 4 with me, suddenly the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Now clearly, Samuel initially thought that it was Eli calling him. I mean, who else could it have been? In Samuel's mind, there was only one person that would have been calling him. And so Samuel's response was not to respond, we should see, with something like, Eli, man, can it wait? It's the middle of the night, I'm trying to sleep. Which is probably how I think I probably would have responded. Uh, Nor was he just uh, ignoring the call, uh, trying to get back to sleep. No, his response is to get up and immediately get to Eli's side, where he would eagerly and politely say to Eli, here I am for you called me. And Eli just stayed in bed, uh, but told Samuel, I did not call, lie down again. Go back to bed, Samuel. And so Samuel did as Eli instructed, maybe a little bit confused about what had just taken place. 
But before long, look at verse 6, the Lord called yet again Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And once again, Eli just stays in bed. And he instructs Samuel, Hey, go back to sleep. Go, go back to bed. But as he answers him this time, we, we start to catch a little bit of a glimpse of the relationship that I think existed between Samuel and Eli. Because you can kind of get a glimpse, just a, just a slight glimpse, of the tenderness that Eli felt towards Samuel in the way that he addresses Samuel. He addresses him as my son. His own sons had betrayed God and betrayed him, but Samuel clearly had a dear place in Eli's heart at this point. As for Samuel, once again we see that he is eager to respond. He's, he's cordial, he's polite, uh, he's respectful, he's obedient, but he's probably even more confused this time uh, than he was the first time as Samuel again denies that it was him and tells him to go back to bed. Uh, and as we reach verse 7, we realize why Samuel naturally would have been very confused. Verse 7 tells us, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. And that's kind of a strange thing to say about Samuel. It's almost, but not quite, identical to the way that Eli's sons were described back in chapter 2, verse 12. If you've got your Bibles open, look back at chapter 2, verse 12, where we were told that the sons of Eli did not know the Lord. So in that sense, there's, there's a similarity, a parallel between Eli's sons and Samuel. But the difference here is the word yet. The difference is the word yet. There was actually an enormous difference between Samuel and Eli's sons. Eli's sons were ignorant of the word of the Lord because of their sin. Uh, Eli's sons had suppressed the truth of God's Word with their own unrighteousness. Uh, they hated God. They had despised His offerings because they had despised God. Samuel, on the, on the other hand, didn't know the Lord yet. And the reason was because the Word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And we know that it's only possible for a person to know God when God initiates by making Himself known to a person. He's revealed by His Word, but Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, weren't concerned with the Word of God at all. But what a strange thing it is here to consider that as God speaks into the darkness in this scene, it's nighttime, God speaks, it's dark, and He's not recognized. Let the horrific reality of that set in for just a second. So Samuel goes back to bed again, and it happened again. God calls out to him. One of the things uh, we should see here is the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. He, he doesn't get agitated with Samuel. He doesn't rebuke Samuel for not recognizing his voice. In fact, God remains extremely patient with Samuel. Because God's in no rush. We're the ones who are always in a rush. We're the ones who think this should happen now or God should do that right now. No, God is always working out His 
promises and purposes, even though from our perspective, it might seem like He's doing so very slowly and very unpredictably. And boy, if if God could only know what, what I think, He could do things a little bit better. That's what our inclination is. But what grace it is that God would accommodate our ignorance, that He would stoop to our level to find us wherever we may be, spiritually speaking. So when it happens a third time, Eli suddenly realizes what's happening. The third time, he instructs Samuel saying, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So clearly, Eli finally gets this one right. Uh, one commentator notes, quote, His sight had grown dim, but he was not yet completely blind. End quote. So Samuel goes back to bed for the third time, and we have to imagine at this point, he's not actually going to be able to go back to sleep. He's probably eagerly hoping for a fourth chance, which comes before long. Let's look at verses 10 to 18. It says, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. He said, What is the the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So this is the fourth time that the Lord calls out in the darkness to Samuel. But it's clear that this fourth time is very different from the first three times that he called out to Samuel. This time we read this. It says, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. The Lord is physically there. Now when we read that, we're reminded of what God told Moses when Moses asked if he could see God. God said to him, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. That's from Exodus 33.20. But we should also remember what the Scriptures tell us in John chapter 1, verse 18, which says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Who's that? Jesus. He has explained Him. So, of course, this is a reference to Jesus being the full revelation of God. 
Now add to those verses 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, which says this about Jesus, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The only image of God that man has ever been able to physically see is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh. And so as Yahweh stands before Samuel, what are we to think of that? We're to understand that this is one of a handful of places that you'll find throughout the Old Testament where Jesus shows up. One of the comments that some uh, skeptics or even atheists will, uh, will bring up is, you know, Jesus kind of just shows up in the New Testament. If he's God, where was he in the Old Testament? Here you go. Here's one example, one place where he shows up. In fact, he shows up in several places. Any place there is a physical image, a physical representation of God, it's Jesus, including the rock in the wilderness, Paul tells us, right? And so... What we have to understand here is that as Yahweh stands before him, it's Jesus. And as Jesus calls out to Samuel a fourth time, we should see how Samuel responds. It's not the way that Eli told him to respond. Once again, a single word is omitted. Eli had told him to say, Speak, Lord, Or speak, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. But Samuel doesn't say that. Instead, he says, speak, for your servant is listening. Now, what's missing? Obviously, the name of God, Yahweh, wasn't included. I think, number one, uh, Samuel is very young. He did not yet know the word of the Lord. It had not yet been revealed to him. But we can assume that that's why uh, he doesn't use the title Lord or, or Yahweh here. That's because he doesn't know Yahweh yet. But with this encounter, that was all about to change. Finally, the word of the Lord is heard by someone in Israel. Yahweh delivers a warning of the just judgment that was about to fall on Eli's house. The warning is prefaced with Yahweh saying this. He says, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, don't confuse that with tickling ears. That, it's not the same thing. This was basically a figure of speech. Tingling ears was, was kind of a figure of speech that we'll find uh, three times in the Old Testament. It's essentially the, the equivalent of sayings that we have, like your, your knees are knocking or your lip is quivering or things like that. In other words, it's a sign of incredible fear. He was about to do something to once again instill the fear of Yahweh in the people uh, of Israel. So the Lord then proceeds to say that he was about to do exactly what he had told Eli through the messenger in the previous chapter, the the man of God that God had sent to him in chapter 2. The Lord explains why this must happen in verse 13. Because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Now you might think to yourself, wait a minute, didn't he rebuke them? I mean, he went to them and told them, you know, hey, cut it out, guys. But did he really rebuke them? What's clear here is that in God's true judgment, in God's just judgment, he didn't. His words were not enough. They were not sufficient. 
So was Eli's sin of, of just speaking to them but not doing anything, was, was his sin really that bad? That he should be on the receiving end of this judgment? And the answer is yes. Yes, it was. Because it is impossible for God to lie. He is always, therefore, because He cannot lie, He's always perfectly just, perfectly righteous in His judgments. He is a God of knowledge, as Hannah uh, saying in her psalm at the beginning of chapter 2, which tells us, which reminds us that nothing escapes his notice. Nothing slips by him. And so if he says that the words that Eli spoke to his sons were not even good enough to be classified as a legitimate rebuke, who are we to argue? Who are we to, to question his just and perfect judgments? Nobody can take the moral high ground with God as if we know better than He does. His judgment here is just and true. So Yahweh continues in verse 14 saying, Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Do you realize what a horrible, fearful thing it is to reject, indeed to despise the gracious means that God has provided, the gracious means that God has set forth for the forgiveness of sins. What a terrible thing it is to look at what God has provided and to say, forget it, I don't, I don't need it. Or as the warning was in the previous chapter, to kick it. What a horrible thing that is. Because what alternative does a person have to the means of forgiveness that God has already provided and set forth? The only alternative is judgment. It's wrath. Just wrath. This is the first word from God that's been entrusted with Samuel. What a responsibility for that to be the first word that's entrusted to him. We should see here that there is a tension that every, every minister of the gospel has to actually come to terms with. Ralph Dale Davis notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, The true prophet must speak Yahweh's word, else why is he entrusted with it? Yet the true prophet recoils from speaking judgment. He will speak judgment because truth is at stake, but he cringes to speak it because compassion moves him. In other words, the minister of the gospel goes forth with good news, knowing that it is only good news to those who receive and believe it. But it is terrifying news to those who reject it, to those who despise it, to those who kick it. And yet, that minister of the gospel, that Christian, must speak the truth. Because we are a people of the truth. But the subject at hand here is just incredibly heavy. And it's laid on young Samuel. That's why we see in verse 15, so Samuel lay down until morning. He did what? He, he, he laid down. But do you think he slept I doubt it. I, I would say he almost 
I'm almost certain he did not sleep. It says, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He laid down, then he opened the doors of the house. Nothing in there about sleeping. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And we can relate to that, can't we? Have you ever felt nervous to tell somebody the gospel? Have you ever felt nervous to warn someone that if you don't believe in Jesus, God will judge you and cast you into the outer darkness forever? Are you afraid to say that to somebody? I am. I hate saying it. But it's the truth. So I will say it. So we can understand why Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. One of the hardest things we have to do is tell people the truth. Why? Because people hate the truth. They've already suppressed it in their unrighteousness. They don't want that part of their conscience awakened. They are perfectly content just sleeping through life, paying no attention to the knowledge that they already have of the truth. And that makes it difficult to tell people the truth. The fact that they hate the truth. They've already rejected the truth. It's so much easier to give people a message that you know makes a person feel good. Hey, God loves you. Hey, Jesus died for you. Except, did He? If they don't believe. And yet, you hear people say that all the time. Jesus loves you. Okay, great. I, you know, I, I love me too. So, cool. It's so much easier to give people a message that affirms them and validates them. In our day and age, the only alternative to affirming is to hate. And so when we don't affirm somebody in their sin, they interpret it as hatred. And we have to live with that. Because we cannot affirm what God does not. I drove by a church this past week down in Edmonds uh, that has a digital reader board outside that says, we affirm everyone with a rainbow on it. How dare they do that? How dare they say that they affirm everyone when God does not? As I've said before about that kind of language. I guarantee you that if I went in there and told them what my views of things are, they would not affirm me. God has revealed His view of things and they will not affirm Him. It's hard to speak the truth. That's why we have to do it in love. We have to intentionally, consciously do it in love. We're to speak the truth graciously, lovingly, not maliciously, not gleefully as Jonah seems to have when he went to preach to the Ninevites about God's destruction to come upon their city. Now the preacher who never warns people of God's hatred of sin, of God's just judgment against sin, a person, a pastor or a preacher who affirms people in their sin, is a phony. They're, they're what the Bible calls, what Jesus calls, a hired hand who will run at the first opportunity. At the same time, however, if a pastor, if a minister of the gospel only speaks of God's hatred of sin, uh, his judgment of sin, if, if he only speaks of, of God's anger toward the ways of the world, uh, but he never offers a word of, of hope or love or encouragement, 
one has to wonder why he sounds like a clanging cymbal when he speaks, but not with love. God's Word, see, has a way of afflicting the comfortable, but it also comforts the afflicted. It afflicts the comfortable, it comforts the afflicted when it's handled correctly. We like, to con, you know, we like to offer condolences and, and comfort to the afflicted. That's, that's really easy. That's the easy part of it. But God's Word, when it's understood and handled rightly, serves both purposes. One of the most important things, if not the most important thing I've learned in thir- almost 13 years of pastoral ministry here at this church, is that the Word of God serves two primary purposes when it's preached in a church context. Uh, the primary purpose, of course, is to draw, uh, to, to feed, to nourish, uh, and nurture the sheep. That's its first purpose. But the second purpose is that it drives goats away. It keeps the goats at bay. Uh, goats might be able to sit through a couple sermons, uh, and, and we have lengthy sermons here. They might be able to sit through a couple of them, but they won't stick around for long when God's Word is being preached faithfully. The Word of the Lord is the under-shepherd's weapon of choice against the goats. In fact, it's our only weapon. And it serves both of these purposes very well, which means that in the end, it both feeds and protects the flock when it's taught faithfully. Now, it would have been easier for Samuel to not tell Eli about his vision, for him to just clam up and not say anything about it. That obviously would have been easier, but Eli insists. He, he summons him and Samuel responds, here I am. Eli insists that Samuel tell him everything that Yahweh had spoken to him. And Samuel obediently and faithfully complies, telling Eli every detail of what God had revealed to him, had spoken to him. Now for all the shortcomings of Eli, for all the mistakes that we've seen Eli make, he's right on target with the way that he responds when, he's, when he hears God's judgment against him reiterated. His response isn't to say, oh, I can't believe that he had to remind me. He feels like he has to remind me again. He didn't say, Samuel, never speak God's judgment to people. They don't want to hear that. No, what he says to Samuel is, it is the Lord. It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. For all the times he's messed up, he doesn't mess up here. He doesn't challenge God. He doesn't doubt God's goodness. He doesn't question God's righteousness. He acknowledges and accepts God's just judgment against him and his entire household. As Paul would write in Romans 9.14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Or in verse 21, Does not the potter have a right over the clay? Or as Abram said when God was about to pour out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Yes. Yes, He will. He always will. In fact, He cannot deal unjustly. And what we see here is that Eli knew that. And he accepted it. Humbly. 
Samuel now knew and spoke on behalf of the Lord. The word of the Lord had been revealed to him. And that leads us to the last three verses of the chapter and the first part of the first verse of the next chapter. Let's look at verse uh, 319 to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. First part of verse 1. It says, Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The things that Samuel would speak on Yahweh's behalf would not fail. Why? Because God doesn't fail. God doesn't fail. Samuel would be recognized throughout all of Israel as God's prophet. What confirmed? Uh, what was it that confirmed that he was a prophet of Yahweh? Obviously, the fact that his words never failed. Same holds true today, by the way. If somebody wants to claim that they're a prophet and they speak the word of God, that's what they want to claim. Okay, let's test it. If something doesn't come to pass, what do we get to do then? That's the test. But it was clear that there was a serious crisis that was taking place in Israel at the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 3. But as we come to the end of this chapter, it's clear that God has resolved this crisis. The times of the word of the Lord being rarely heard were over, at least for a time. There's something that we need to understand, however. There are two possible reasons for God's Word not being heard. The first is that He would just be silent. And God has the sovereign right to be silent. Uh, But God has given us His Word. And to this day, the Bible, the Scriptures, His Word is where the Lord is heard. Uh, As you've probably seen some say in our times, as so many people um, who claim to be Christian desire fresh revelation from God, which is, by the way, to say that the Scriptures are not sufficient, which is a terrible thing to say. But you'll see people say, you know, I want to hear fresh revelation from God. But the answer is, if you want to hear from God, you have to go to the Word of God, the Scriptures. You must read them, but... If you want to hear from God out loud, just read them out loud. But further, we understand that there's a sense in which we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd whenever His Word is preached faithfully. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice, and they follow Me. But there's a second, and there's a far more common reason that God's voice is not heard, and that is because people aren't listening. It's because he's ignored by people who don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. And this is where the real famine comes in in our times. People aren't feasting on God's Word. They're feasting on lesser things. They're feasting on ideologies. They're feasting on programs. They're feasting on little pep talks that sound really worldly, but they're just clothed in Christianese. Anything except God's Word is what people, so many people, even people who claim to be Christians, are feasting on in our times. 
what we know is that even the ability to hear and understand the Word of God is a gift from heaven. Even though we have more Bibles than people in our nation, a famine does exist, not because God's Word is rare, but because people have lost their appetite for it. And this is why there's an urgency to preaching the Gospel, but also to responding ourselves, to responding in faith when when you hear the Word of God being preached. When you hear the good news that you can be cleansed of all your sin by believing in Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there's an urgency to believe. The Scriptures admonish us this way. It says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, what's the alternative to hearing His voice? It's hardening your hearts. How's a person's heart hardened when they hear His voice? By disbelief. By absence of faith. That's what absence of faith results in. A hardening of the heart. Therefore, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Urgency. There's an urgency to it. Why? Because you might not hear it again. You might not hear the voice of the Lord calling to you again. So do it now. But what grace it is that He would draw near. And I say that because all we deserve is that He would draw near to judge us and to cast us away forever as a just judgment against us for our sins. His Word says this, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. Why would He do that? so that He wouldn't judge us. He would do that that we might hear and believe and that by faith alone receive the free gift of salvation in Christ alone. Samuel was God's response to the famine, the the lack of God being heard in these ancient days. But Samuel, as a prophet who was something of a messenger who stood between God and man, was only a foreshadow of the true and greater Samuel, who is the Lord Jesus, who would be and is now our prophet, priest, and King. Jesus now leads us. Jesus now speaks to us by His Word. And Jesus is the only mediator who stands between God and man. We're told that thus the Word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's the result of God revealing Himself to Samuel by His Word. God's Word would once again be faithfully proclaimed in Israel. And where God's Word is heard, God is feared. Where God's Word is faithfully proclaimed, God's voice is heard and His light is shined into the darkness. Our duty is to respond in faith and obedience to God's Word. Not only proclaiming it, but keeping it. Obeying it following it do you want the darkness that has fallen on our nation to be overcome there's only one answer because there's only one light 
And that is speaking the truth of God's Word. Knowing, being confident of the fact that God's Word will do God's work. God's Word will accomplish God's purposes. And perhaps, by God's grace, if the Lord is willing, we too will see for ourselves that as God's Word is proclaimed, God will shine His light into the darkness of the culture, and the culture, the darkness, will not overcome it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that it is by Your Word being preached that we hear from You. And so we need not thirst or starve. We need only turn to Your Word. We thank You for the work that was done in the Protestant Reformation to recover a high view of Your Word, an uncontested view of Your Word. We pray, Lord, that this would be our view of Your Word as well. That we may turn to Your Word regularly for our daily bread, for our sustenance, for our nourishment, and to hear from You knowing that this is the means that You have given us to hear from You. Oh Lord, give us confidence not only in Your Word, but in You. And Your ability to shine light into darkness. Father, every one of us is surrounded by darkness wherever we walk. But You have called us to be light and salt in this dead and dying culture. Oh God, we pray that You would give us the courage of Samuel to speak the truth. To tell the world the good news of Jesus, but also the warning that apart from Jesus, not a drop of grace can be found. So teach us to walk by Your grace. Teach us to live in obedience to Christ. And give us courage to speak the truth, knowing that Your Word accomplishes Your work and that faith comes by hearing. We pray these things for the glory and honor of Christ our Lord. Amen.